And um, I will ask you to open your Bibles this morning to the Gospel of John once again. The Gospel of John chapter 11. John chapter 11. I'm going to read a full 44 verses to you this morning. But you really can't do it piecemeal. You have to take the whole thing as, as one. So let's read this portion of the Gospel of John chapter 11. So John writes, A certain man was sick, Lazarus of Bethany, the town of Mary and her sister Martha. It was that Mary who anointed the Lord with fragrant oil and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was sick. Therefore the sisters sent to Jesus, saying, Lord, behold, he whom you love is sick. And when Jesus heard that, he said, This sickness is not unto death, but for the glory of God, that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister Mary, uh, and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that he was sick, he stayed two more days in the place where he was. And after this, he said to the, to the disciples, let us go to Judea again. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, lately the Jews sought to stone you. And are you going there again? The uh, and Jesus answered, are there not 12 hours in a day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if one walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. These things he said, and after that he said to them, Our friend Lazarus sleeps, but I go that I may wake him up. The disciples said, Lord, if he sleeps, he will get well. However, Jesus spoke of his death, but they thought that he was speaking about taking rest in sleep. So Jesus said to them plainly, Lazarus is dead. And I'm glad for your sakes that I was not there, that you may believe. Nevertheless, let us go to him. Then Thomas, who was called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, let us also go that we may die with him. So when Jesus came, he found that he'd already been in the tomb four days. Now Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles away, and many of the Jews had joined the women around Martha and Mary to comfort them concerning their brother. Then Martha, as soon as she heard that Jesus was coming, went and met him, but Mary was sitting in the house. Now Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that whatever you ask of God, God will give it you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he'll rise again in the resurrection in the last day. And Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he may die, he shall live. And he who lives and believes in me shall never die. Jesus said to him, yes, Lord. Or rather, she said to him, yes, Lord. I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is to come into the world. And when she had said these things, she went her way and secretly called Mary, her sister, saying, The teacher has come and is calling for you. And as soon as she heard that, she arose quickly and came to him. Now Jesus had not yet come into the town, but was in the place where Martha met him. And the Jews who were with him in the house and comforting her, or rather with her in the house and comforting her, when they saw that Mary rose up quickly and went out, followed her, saying she's going to the tomb to weep there. Then when Mary came where Jesus was and saw him, she fell down at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. 
Therefore, when Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who came with her weeping, he groaned in the spirit and was troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? And they said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. And the Jews said, see how he loved him. And some of them said, some of them said, could not this man who opened the eyes of the blind also have kept this man from dying? And Jesus, again groaning in himself, came to the tomb. It was a cave, and a stone lay against it. Jesus said, Take away the stone. Martha, the sister of him who was dead, said to him, Lord, by this time there is a stench, for he has been dead four days. Jesus said to her, Did I not say to you that if you would believe, you would see the glory of God? Then they took away the stone from the place where the dead man was lying, and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me, and I know that you always hear me, but because of the people who are standing by, I said this, that they may believe that you sent me. And when he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. And he who had died came out bound hand and foot with grave clothes, and his face was wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to them, loose him, let him go. Amen. Father, in Jesus' name, open these scriptures to us yet again. The story is familiar, O Lord, but we never tire of hearing the call to eternal life, O Lord, for you are indeed the resurrection and the life. Amen. All right, it's a well-known story. I'm I hope everybody knows the story, but let's look into it a little bit more this morning. Verse 4, we read, The sickness is not unto death, but for the glory of God, that the Son of God may be glorified through it. So we have this story. We have this beloved family. They live in a town called Bethany, which was really a a Sabbath day's journey or a, or a, a mere walk to Jerusalem for Passover. They, it appears they're a wealthy family with a lot of friends and maybe a, a great estate. And um, of course, there's Martha and Mary, who we meet throughout the Scriptures and other places in the Gospels, right? And then there's Lazarus, her brother. And the brother has died. And you get that from the, from the reading, correct? There's the three siblings, and they, they lived as a family, as, as adult siblings on the estate, so far as we know. And of course, Lazarus was sick. They sent for Jesus, who was in Galilee. If you follow the Gospel of John closely, you'll notice that he's always pointing out the concern the disciples have about going back to Judea. Because Jesus said a few things that they took up stones to stone him, and he sort of passes through. And they're always fretful and worried about going back there. But of course, at some point we know Jesus has to go back there, and they do have to um, deliver him up for us all on the cross. But it's, uh, it's an amazing story. But we have, we have in this simple story the ultimate gospel tale. We see the spiritual development of the apostles in the episode of, the, of this life of Christ in the earth. We see the ultimate demonstration of the deity of Christ. His word carries life in it. His command carries the ultimate authority if the Lord had not asked, O grave, where is thy victory? Or death, where is, O death, where is thy sting? It could not be asked. The question is rhetorical for the Lord. There is no sting of death to those who love the Lord. There is no grave that can hold the beloved of the Lord, who is the resurrection and the life. 
The Lord threatens death itself and dares it to strike. Death and the grave are the prisons of the ungodly, friends. But breath and life and light are the gifts of God for those whom he loves. And this comes across in the dialogue, particularly between Jesus and the sisters, doesn't it? So what is sickness? Well, it's a reality of this life, right? I hardly know a person that hasn't been sick. For the ungodly, sickness is a fearful diagnosis. For the saint, it is a reminder to believe. For the ungodly, it's the curse of the flesh. For the saint, it's a promise of glory. For we have a God that loves to make something from nothing. He loves to bring life out of death. He loves to call worlds into existence where even the materials of those worlds didn't exist until he called them into being. He loves to transform the void of space into the gardens of the earth. He takes a desert and he makes it a field. He takes empty vessels of the poor widow of a prophet and he fills them with oil and wipes out debt and scarcity. The only thing restricting him from making full vessels is a lack of empty ones. He takes emptiness and renders it fullness, sickness and renders it health and death and brings life out of it. Lazarus was as the bones of Ezekiel's vision. They're strewn about the desert, the vestige of a dead and defeated army. All they lack is a word, and dry death becomes vibrant life once again. And so he said to Ezekiel, speak to the bones, prophesy to the breath. Ezekiel writes, then he said to me, son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel. Friends, it's the church. They indeed say, oh, bones are dry, our hope is lost, and we ourselves are cut off. Therefore prophesy and say to them, thus says the Lord God, behold, O my people, I will open your graves and cause you to come up from your graves and bring you into the land of Israel, and you shall know that I am the Lord when I have opened your graves, O my people, and brought you up from your graves. This is the business of the Lord. I'll put my spirit in you, he said, and you shall live. And I'll place you in your own land, and you shall know that I, the Lord, have spoken it and performed it, says the Lord. And he said that hundreds of years before this time when he called Lazarus from the tomb of Bethany. So verse 5, we read, Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. Oh, that that would be said of us, that Jesus loves us. John's already dictated and demonstrated in the previous 10 chapters the Lord's, that the Lord's love comes with gracious gifts, doesn't it? He's already shown that. Isn't it interesting how everyone in the story knew he could heal sickness? They didn't know he could call the dead to life yet. I think they knew, but they didn't dare to, to take their doctrine that far. They all knew that the Lord's love comes with gracious gifts right? The Lord so loved the world that he gave something to it. Love always gives, right? First, what does he give? He gives existence itself. All things were made through him, John wrote. We're indebted to Christ for our very existence because without him, nothing was made that was made. Your life was called into existence from nothing by Jesus Christ. And he set you in a world already made with all the things that you needed that he called into existence before he called you. Before he called Adam, he prepared the garden for him. Very orderly God, isn't he? 
He's the author of all true knowledge. John wrote earlier, that was the true light which gives light to every man coming in the world. There is some of the light of Christ in every man that comes into the world. I really believe to deny that, to be an atheist, is the first sign of insanity. To believe that nobody plus nothing equals everything. As John MacArthur gives the great evolution equation, there's no God, there's nothing in existence, but everything just happened. It's pretty absurd on its face. And then he writes, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. It was not enough that he should be a spiritual far-off God, but rather he was born of flesh and entered our world through the womb of the virgin, the way all men come in through the womb of a woman. He comes through the womb of a particular virgin, right? That God so blessed with this, with this wonderful privilege to birth the Christ of God. But he wouldn't be a spiritual far-off God. He walked and he talked and he ate and he drank and he lived and taught and he suffered and he died just as each of us all will do. He did it with us. And so he took our lives and so he became subject to our laws. For the law was given through Moses, John wrote, but grace and truth comes through Jesus Christ. Friends, the law is perfect in its precepts. But at the same time, it's powerless in its application. Following it was at the same time perfect righteousness and utterly impossible. But grace and truth bring life, you see. Friends, do you believe in transubstantiation? I do. Jesus transubstantiated water into wine. And he ran the money changes out of the temple in chapter 2. That's the transubstantiation that Protestants believe, right? Takes one thing of one substance and transubstantiated into another substance. That's chapter 2. He taught basic theology to the beloved Pharisee Nicodemus in chapter 3. He gave the gospel to the woman at the well and brought her whole Samaritan village into the faith in chapter 4. He turned legend into reality at the healing pool of Bethesda in chapter 5, and he fed the 5,000 and walked on water in chapter 6. In chapter 7, he revealed himself to his family. He forgave the adulteress in chapter 8. He healed the blind man in 9 and separated sheep from goats in 10. And here in chapter 11, he performs his greatest miracle. He declares himself the resurrection and the life and then demonstrates it. John's is an awesome tour full of wonderful, miraculous gospel tales. And this is the crowning demonstration of Christ in the earth. Verse 6, so when he heard that Lazarus was sick, he stayed two more days in the place where he was. Wait a minute. He loved Martha and Mary and Lazarus. He hears they're sick. They call for him as we do in prayer, but he tarries. He waits. See if we can follow John's reasoning here. It seems on its face a little unlikely, doesn't it? Wouldn't you think he loved Martha and Mary and Lazarus? So he bolted to get to their house before Lazarus died. Friends, my old friend, Gwen Kimball. It's funny quoting her now that she died at 100 years old a couple of months ago. God is not at his wit's end, she used to say. Note how he develops the story. Jesus loved the family of Bethany, John writes. One of them's gravely ill. They need him. They send for him. And yet the apostle says that his response to all this, to his beloved, is to delay. 
Friends, our flesh takes issue with delays, doesn't it? We don't like it. Why do you stand afar off, the, the psalmist says. Why do you not hear my pleas and my cries night and day? Why all these things? Our flesh pleads with the Lord. Our flesh does not like those kinds of delays. It's emotionally hurtful, I think, to be denied access to the love and nearness of a personal friend when we're in need. Imagine having Jesus as, I don't want to trivialize this, but imagine having him as a, like a buddy, like a close personal friend, which is obvious the kind of relationship they have here. Lazarus is sick. Go find Jesus quickly. Tell him to get here. Surely he'll come right away. His beloved Lazarus is sick. Jesus wept, and the Jews said, look how he loved him. For us to yearn for him while he turns from us is most distressing and agonizing and challenging to our faith. But our spirit knows the privilege of divinely appointed trials. Count it all joy when you fall into various trials. Will we ever master that? I'll let you know when I get there. So if you would be loved as the family of Bethany is loved, friend, then you must be content to be tried as the family of Bethany is tried. We take the love with the trial. Because he's the Lord, and he's sovereign, and he knows better. And guess what else? We don't own ourselves. He owns us. Paul said to the Corinthians, you are the purchased possession of Christ, and the price was his life, his blood for yours. So if we want to accept the Lord's love, we have to accept the Lord's trial, the same way the family of Bethany did. And so when he hears the plea for healing, he waits for sickness to have its triumph. Oh, Jesus is not at his wit's end. John's gospel keeps us continually aware that danger awaits the Lord in Judea. All right, so you have Israel, right? You know how Israel looks, sort of a long coastal region, Middle East. And in the south is Judea, and in the north is Galilee. And Jesus and his ministry focused mostly on Galilee. If you you go to the gospel of John, and you're careful in your reading, you'll find that he goes to at least three Passovers. Maybe the fourth one is the last, where he is killed as the Lamb of God for the atonement of Israel. But he, goes to, he has to go to Jerusalem for the feast because it's the law. So he goes and he preaches and he gets threatened and he flees back to Galilee for safety. And that's what John keeps bringing up as a theme throughout his gospel. So they recognize this danger in Gal- Galilee. So he's, he's constantly going, a danger in Judea. So he constantly absconds back to his home, beloved Galilee in the north. And so they said, Rabbi, lately the Jews sought to stone you. Are you going there again? And so he replies in a, in a wonderful Jesus way. Jesus answered, are there not 12 hours in a day? <laughs> Imagine that for the answer. And they're thinking, how do, what a non sequitur. I asked him why he's going back to Judea. And he says, he's telling me how many hours are in the day. Um, if anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of the world. But if one walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. Friends, his reference of the day and the light refer to God's will. And there's darkness outside of that realm. He only has so much time. He's calling it a day's light's worth of time. The day splits evenly into, in that part of the world, evenly into 12 hours of light, 12 hours a day. And for Jesus, the light, even though he may walk in literal night to get there, he's in God's will, and that's the light that he's speaking of. Jesus is aware of God's will for him in the moment. See, that's what we don't always know. We, don't know, we know God's general will for us, and we pray, oh, lead me in this, oh, give me a sign, tell me what to do here, show me how to go. But in the moment-by-moment, day-to-day life, we're not always aware of God's particular will for us at that time. Well, Jesus is. 
he has that complete connection as a member of the Trinity. Jesus is aware of God's will for him in the moment. There is danger. They want to kill him. They plot to do so. And I suspect that Nicodemus himself has become their trusted confidant and informer. Remember last week we spoke about Nicodemus. I'm going to develop this a little bit because I think it, it bears out in the, uh, in the Gospel of John. We should recall Jesus' teaching on this very thing to Nicodemus about this light and the darkness, right? He said, this is the condemnation that lights come into the world, but men love darkness rather than light because their deeds are evil. Friends, evil men like the darkness. It shields the eyes of men to see the evil that they would keep concealed. Evil men are fearful men, friends. They can't be very bold because if they were, they'd have to come into the light and it would be seen what they are. And that's Jesus' teaching to Nicodemus, who came at night, you see. Don't act like the unrighteous by coming at night under cover of darkness. Come in the daytime. Let it be known that you're talking to me. And so the believer yearns for light and walks in the light, so fears far from him. Now, insofar as my conjecture of Nicodemus' growing alliance with the Lord and company, I refer you to a very interesting passage regarding the relationship forged between the Lord and this Pharisee. So from chapter 7, John wrote this, The officers came to the chief priests and Pharisees who said to them, Why have you not brought him? You see, the leaders of the Sanhedrin at the time sent out officers to get Jesus early in his ministry. They had already suspected what he would do and that he'd get many followers and that people would believe in him and follow him. So they sent out officers, but the officers come back, and this is what they say. They ask, why have you not brought him? And the officers answered, no man ever spoke like this man. In other words, we were so impressed with this teaching, we thought maybe there was a mistake. Like, why would we take such a wise and good person as this and arrest him? And the Pharisees answered them and said, are you also deceived? Have any of the rulers of the Pharisees believed in him? But this crowd that does not know the law, is accursed, they said. This crowd, that's how they think of their... See, they're the intellectual elite, and the crowd, the sinful crowd, are the ones they despise. And Jesus is, well, he's one of the crowd. And then John offers this wonderful hint of alliance. Nicodemus, the one who came to Jesus by night, being one of them, a Pharisee, said to them, does our law judge a man before it hears and knows what he's doing? In other words, he stuck up for Jesus. And they answered and said to him, Are you also from Galilee? If he had a Twitter account, they would have cut it down right then and there. (laughs) Search and look, for no prophet has come out of Galilee. Why would you expect one to come now? And everyone went to his own house, it says. John likes to end like that. So John foreshadows a partisan theme at play here. The Lord's from Galilee, and so the Galileans have this natural affinity toward him. The Pharisees are a Judean cult. They oppose him on several grounds, not the least of which is ethnic. And so they accuse Nicodemus of being a Galilean. I wonder if, like Peter, his accent betrayed him. I almost suspect myself that Nicodemus might have been a Galilean. So Nicodemus points them to their constitution. The Jews had a constitution. It's called the Law of Moses. And a man accused is allowed a defense and witnesses and procedure It's the same in our government, isn't it? Without due process, friends, there's no process at all. And a man is guilty not by proof, 
not by, but rather by proclamation. We just declared him guilty. And Nicodemus is challenging this, you see. The Pharisees are the Me Too party of their day, friends. Accusation is guilt. But now they have to answer the questions of their own who dares to hold them accountable to the very laws they accuse the Lord of breaking. And so Nicodemus is taking the Lord's side in this. How do you arrest him? He hasn't had a trial. He hasn't been heard. Don't, uh, does our law provide for that? So their initial assumption, by the way, is wrong. There was one Galilean prophet, and he's the only prophet Jesus compared himself to. I give you Jonah. Jonah was from Gath Hefer, which was a mere few miles from Nazareth of Galilee. So back to our verse and to the Lord's reference to night and day, Jesus recognizes temporal dangers, and we see him at several instances putting off tempting danger before his time has come. In other words, the Lord's always cognizant of God's step-by-step schedule events for him, which, of course, culminate at Calvary. He knows where he's going. He keeps telling them. Sometimes he hints. Sometimes he throws it right out there, and they really don't get it. Even after he died and the first story came back that he rose from the grave, one of them said, didn't he say something like that would happen on the third day when we were with him? That's why we meet every week, because we're forgetful like that. So it's a human tendency to fear the outcome, which is death. But he must not fear the process leading to death. And so he faces danger with confidence that this is not his time. He knows he can't be taken right now because he knows the step-by-step will. It is in his words, the light of day when all things arranged must be accomplished. Now I've compared this to Peter's excursion out upon the waves of the Sea of Galilee. The apostles see the Lord walking upon an angry sea. If you remember, they're very afraid at first, right? Peter finds the faith to see that there's no danger in a thing if the Lord's in it with you, right? Now, if you're on an angry sea and you're in a boat, the normal thing to think is, I think I'm safer in this boat than out of this boat. But for some reason, Peter thinks it's safest where Jesus is. And so we read this, and Peter answered him and said, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. So Jesus said, come. Not very verbose, is he? Just come. And when Peter had come down out of the boat, he walked on the water to go to Jesus. Ultimate act of faith, right? Indeed, what Peter's childlike faith had taught him was that it was safer with the Lord on an angry sea than in a boat full of fearful apostles. If God's in it, it is the safest place. It is the daylight hour, you see. It's our fear that turns safe daylight of faith into the bleak darkness of unbelief. So walk, the Savior says, while it is yet day. Obey where God's will is clearly known. Now, I'll not belabor the events of the story any further because if you don't know the story of Peter walking on the water, then either you're a very poor student or I'm a very poor teacher. Faith, though, is spiritual substance, friends. Faith is though a spiritual substance and a divine gift may still be diluted by personal fear and doubt, right? Friends, faith doesn't fail us, fail us, but we do fail our faith from time to time. So Peter's leap of faith degrades into a walk of fear. He begins to sink. The apostle dared to trust but failed to persevere. Isn't that how it happens? It's hard to have 
that kind of faith and hold on to it day in and day out with all the mood changes and the sugar highs and lows that we get in the day, isn't it? And so I say to you that when faith fails to carry you, it's love that comes to the rescue. Faith, hope, love, abide these three, Paul wrote. But the greatest of these is love. Faith can take you just so far, but it's love that will finish the race, friends. Love the Lord with all your heart, and you fulfilled the great commandment of Christ. Paul wrote to the Romans, Owe no one anything except to love one another, for he who loves another has fulfilled the law. And so he builds their faith, and he says, We'll go back. We'll face the danger of Judea, because it's God's will. Verse 35, very famously, Jesus wept. It's the entire verse. I preached a eulogy on this some years ago. I think it was 2011 for a friend of mine that died, a whole group of unbelievers. My whole text was Jesus wept. I told them that I'm going to teach them a Bible verse today. I'm going to say it one time, and they will memorize it immediately. It's miraculous how it will happen. And I said, you'll not only remember the verse immediately, you'll know that Danny Kasseri preached it to you at Jimmy Yerkowitz's eulogy. And they're like, what's he saying? And I went, here's the verse. Jesus wept. I got calls for a week. Hey, Danny, Jesus wept. (laughs) It's a great verse. It's very instructive. Jesus wept. And the Jews said, see how he loved him. Weeping means love. It's sadness. Jesus is grieving. Why? Because he's a man. He has love. And he's seen the pain of his beloved. So he lets his beloved enter the trial. I have to believe somewhere in his humanness, he's saddened by the fact that he has to let them go through this. But all the while, he grieves it with them. John writes, then Jesus again, groaning in himself. I don't know what that exactly means, but it's, he's not happy. He's groaning in himself. He comes to the tomb. tomb. It was a cave, and a stone lay against it. Friends, could the Lord's groaning be the anguish that he feels for poor Lazarus, who is at that moment present with the Lord, and for the glory of God, he has to call him back to this life? Imagine being in the presence of the Lord and being called back to a dark grave with your face wrapped with cloths. Maybe that's why he's groaning. Verse 37, some of them said, could not this man who opened the eyes of the blind also have kept this man from dying? It's a rhetorical question. Everyone knows, well, yeah, (laughs) he could have done that. In other words, it was a mild complaint, I think. Why was he so late? We see his power. We see his love. We see his personal grief. Why didn't he just come and heal him when we called? Were the sisters angry with Jesus, do you think? I think not. But I do think they were disappointed by the delay. We read this, Now Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you were here, my brother would not have died. Right? She didn't accuse him of anything. But I think there's some grief and disappointment in that. If you were only here, we we called. So the Lord tarries. And so Lazarus dies. And all the while, love had greater plans. Love had greater glory in mind than temporal health and healing. Love puts the whole of the gospel of Christ on display. And so he declared it. And so he preached it. And so he said, I'm the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he may die, he shall live. And he who lives and believes in me shall never die. And so he declares the whole gospel in that verse. 
And so he offers the challenge. And so John, as no other evangelist, writes of Jesus' essential being. I'm the bread of life, he said. I'm the light of the world. I am the door. I am the good shepherd. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the way and the truth and the life. I am the true vine. I am, I am, I am. That's his name, Yahweh. I am the resurrection and the life. Friends, we preach the word. He is the word. We declare the light. He is the light. We follow the shepherd. He is the shepherd. We seek the way and the truth and the life. But he is the resurrection and the life. And he's shown up on the scene. So all he needs to do is express his being. And then he gives the great Billy Graham invitation here. (laughs) Do you believe this, he says. In other words, will you, Martha, meet me on the waves? Will you dare to trust me even now when the sea is angry and the tomb is closed to human intervention? And so the beloved saint has her doctrine correct, and she declares the gospel as well. Martha said to him, I know that Lazarus will rise again in the resurrection of the last day. And she said to him, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is to come into the world. Her doctrine is all correct. But love has something greater in mind for her right now, that she doesn't dare to believe. She's passed the test of faith. Despite worldly disappointment, her faith remains intact. Her love for the Lord remains intact. Her hope and trust are still with her and all firmly resting upon the very being of the Son of God. So Jesus said to her, take away the stone. Now he knew she couldn't take away the stone. He was telling her to give the order to take away the stone. These, it seems to me, are women of authority. There are some that, that actually believe, some commentators that actually believe when it says that, that Bethany was the town of Martha and Mary, that they actually owned the town. <laughs> now, I find that a little implausible, but, um, but not impossible. But the fact is, everyone agrees, they, they obviously had a great estate there. Jesus stayed with them, I believe, for the last week of his life. And he would go in and out during Holy Week until the fateful Passover day. So take away the stone, he said. And Martha said to him, Lord, by this time there is a great stench, for he's been dead four days. They're trying to protect Jesus. Sometimes we dare not presume too much. We dare not be too expectant. And so still, the sisters are content that their brother will rise again someday. They're assured that their faith is not in vain and will ultimately save us all from death. It seems they know this. They have their gospel points in a row. But for the moment, they would not have their Lord expose himself to the anathema of the Jews. It was surely expected if they rolled the stone away, Jesus would go in and touch that dead man. And Jews weren't allowed to do that. Especially not on the fourth day. You remember Jesus' body did not see corruption because he was only in the grave three days? The fourth day is the time set by the Jews that denotes decay and corruption. So they say, Lord, it's the fourth day. Surely they expected. Surely the Pharisees expected. Everyone standing by expected that Jesus would enter the tomb and defile himself for the coming feast days by touching a dead body, which would mean he couldn't attend the feast. A body in the tomb four days, the time frame of the Jews set for the inception of bodily decay and carnal corruption. It is an unclean thing. If he even walked in the tomb, the Pharisees there would have condemned him. Verse 40, Jesus said to her, Did I not say to you that if you would believe, you would see the glory of God? 
Little did they know that the Lord would not carry out the corpse. He would call it out. (laughs) I think they probably thought he would go in and come out with Lazarus and try to do mouth-to-mouth resuscitation or something. But who knew that when he said, let there be life, there was life. All he had to do was call. They say if, you know the great phrase Jesus said, with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. It's been said if he didn't say Lazarus, every corpse would have come out of every grave and swarmed the place. But he kept it parochial. Verse 41. They took away the stone from the place where the dead man was lying. Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me, and I know that you always hear me. But because of the people who are standing by, I said this, that they may believe that you sent me. Friends, Jesus doesn't live by faith. Do you know that? He walks by sight. God doesn't need faith to believe in himself. We need faith because we haven't got the sight At some point, we'll trade in faith for a sight, and we'll be in the presence of the Lord. Faith will have been a great schoolmaster that led us to Christ, right? Like Paul says of the the law. God needs no assurance of who he is. But those standing by need assurance. He sees God the Father for what he is, and so will we when we're face to face with him. And then our faith will melt away and give way to perfect, eternal sight. Rather, he asks favor of the Lord as an example to those standing by. That's us. We're standing by. We're in the crowd that day, waiting to see what the Lord's going to do. How's he going to make up to these friends by coming late like this? When everyone knows he could have saved the day if only he got here in time. The writer of Hebrews spoke of this very aspect of Christ's being, the lowering of himself for our sakes. For the sake of those standing by, he prays for favors from heaven. And so the book of Hebrews says, For in that he put all in subjection under him, he left nothing that is not put under him. But now we do not see all things put under him. We see Jesus, who was made lower than the angels for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, that he, by the grace of God, might taste death for everyone. They could have written, might taste death with us. And so Jesus the man prays to God the Father. Verse 43, the great climax of the story. When he had said these things, he cried with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. John wrote of the same thing elsewhere, calling something out of nothing, light from darkness, death from life. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, And the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him nothing was made that was made. In Him was life, and that life was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not put it out. So the Lord, the living Word, true God of true God, was bestowing life with a Word. Come forth. For those standing by, He offers eternal life. To the dead man, he bestowed life in that very moment. He is the resurrection and the life. And when he who had died came out bound hand and foot with grave clothes and his face was wrapped in a cloth, Jesus said to him, loose him and let him go before he suffocates and dies. (laughs) It's like Jairus' daughter. He said, give her something to eat. (laughs) She's got to be starving by now. She's alive again. Man has to breathe. 
That's what he'll say to you when you die. Loose him and let him go. Get that body out of here. Dying for the Christians like taking off your coat. This is what he'll say to us when he loosens us from the flesh and lets us go to God. Loose him and let him go. Lazarus was absent from the body and present with the Lord until the Lord of life and glory called him back for purposes of his own and for a witness of who he truly was. And so the spirit of Lazarus was called back out of the presence of God and into his human body, which was livened and reconstituted from its decaying state to a renewed fullness of human life. John doesn't get specific, but don't you get the idea that no one said, boy, he looks terrible. He's all corrupted now from being in the grave for it. Nobody said that. He looked fresh, and his, his complexion was as brown as that Judean clay that was all around the place. And so the creator of all life demonstrated for all to see the reality of what Paul expressed to the Romans when he said, God gives life to the dead and calls things that are not as though they were. Isaiah preached this same assurance to all who believe. He said, this is the heritage of the people of the Lord. You'll be loosed and let go from your worldly garments. Verse 11, Lazarus sleeps, but I go that I may wake him up, the Lord said. May he say that of each of us in our time. Father, in Jesus' name, we do praise and thank you, Father, for this, the preservation of your holy word down through the ages for our edification and for the glorification of God on the Lord's day among his people. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.